In this episode, I am once again joined by a Tibetologist, author and translator, and Tantric Buddhist meditation teacher, Glenn Mullen. We discuss Tukdam and Rainbow Body, the mysterious after-death phenomena in which accomplished yogis can remain in suspended animation for days or weeks after death, or dissolve their bodies into their elemental constituents. We hear about the remarkable death of one of Glenn's own gurus, which he witnessed firsthand, as well as discuss the means of communicating with deceased masters through relics and dreams. We also discuss the practices of Poa, consciousness projection at the time of death, and Drongjuk, the forceful projection of one's consciousness into a fresh corpse. And finally, we discuss the Tibetan tradition of reading omens about the time of one's death and how to listen for signs and guidance from the natural world. So, without further ado, Glenn Mullen. Glenn Mullen, thank you very much for returning to the podcast. My honor, my joy, and my pleasure. In this interview, I'd like to focus on the theme of death and dying, both as it's presented in the six yoga systems uh, and also out with those systems. And over the last series of episodes that we've done together, you've interleaved comments about death and dying, particularly in the episodes on illusory body yoga, of which Bardo Yoga is a part, and also of dream yoga, which among other things can be taken as a kind of death rehearsal. But even this only begins to scratch the surface of what is a vast and diverse tradition of texts, practices, and customs. And in your book, Death and Dying, <laughs> in your book, Death and Dying, the Tibetan Tradition, you write, uh, Nothing is considered to be a more powerful teacher of death and impermanence than is the passing of one's own guru. And it's said that when advanced practitioners die, they can enter a state called tuktam, where the body does not follow the usual uh, post-death process so quickly. And the heart area, for instance, remains warm, the skin elastic, etc., and can you talk a bit about this idea of tukdam? And also, have you personally witnessed the death of any of your own gurus or other great masters? And if so, what did you observe there? Well, I had the karmic destiny and honor to uh, come to India in 1972, just uh, uh, 12 or 13 years after the great... Uh, last generation of great Tibetan lamas escaped from Tibet following the communist invasion. And of course, most of those were in their 60s or 70s, some in their 80s. So almost all of the lamas I studied with or trained under at that time passed away. And without, without exception, they all manifested the Tukdam phenomena. And the idea here is that if we can master julu, as it's called in Tibetan, illusory body yoga, control of the inner subtle energies. And so our outer body dies, our inner body, the energies are still active until the soul, if you will, departs from the body, the santana, or the stream of being. So the body is divided or spoken of in three levels. One is this coarse body of flesh and bone. And the other is a subtle body, which is the inner body of psychoneuro energies and chemistry and the, the energies uh, that ride within that chemistry, Bidu in Sanskrit or Tigle in Tibetan. And thirdly, Shintu trauma, very subtle 
which refers to those energies that basically are memories and uh, memories and karmic driving forces, instinctual driving forces of the mind. So those three levels of the body, Tukdam is connected to when the outer body dies, but the inner body, the drops have been managed at the time of dying. The male and female drops are all brought to the center of the heart chakra. And in the center of the heart chakra act as a house for the mind, you could see, or a palace for the mind. So although on the outer level the body has died, there's no breathing and there's no heartbeat, nonetheless, uh, the no other signs of degeneration uh, come into play. The body in, enters a state of kind of suspended animation. In old Tibet, to know when the spirit actually leaves, they would put a gob of butter on the person's center of his chest, just above the center of the chest, and that would stay warm and kind of semi-melted until the spirit left, and then it would crystallize. That's one sign. And the other sign is they keep an eye on the body posture. Most people who do, do tukdam die either in the lion posture, as it's known, often called the sleeping Buddha posture in Western art, but in Tibetan it's known as the lion posture, posture of a sleeping lion, or they die sitting up in meditation. The melting of the butter and the heart <laughs> probably wouldn't work with Western butters, which have all sorts of emulsifiers and whatnot in it, but anyway. Uh, so I think all of my teachers who passed away manifested some sort of tukdam like that. And the idea, they bring five winds, as they're called, but referring to the subtle energies of the body. And when these come into the body, then bringing them into the central channel, bringing them up the central channel and using the, the force of that energy to rise, to raise the fire at the navel chakra, the female chakra, and this rises the central channel, melt the white drop at the crown, and eventually causes it to descend. I'm skipping over quite a few of those stages, just <laughs> for the point of view of our specific topic here, bringing the white drop to the heart and bringing the red drop up to the heart chakra, just under it. So forcing these two up with the mind. And this is a practice known in Tibetan as Doshi Depa, which means Vajra recitation. One essentially suspends time of the body uh, clock, if you will. And uh, this is used as a form of very long breath extension. Breath extension. In the late 70s, uh, Mel Goldstein, no, it wasn't Mel Goldstein, uh, Herb Benson from uh, Harvard University did some tests on these uh, breath retention guys, and they very easily held their breath five and 10 minutes, 15 minutes like that, as this kind of practice of entering a simulated state with the body put into, into a deep state of suspended animation. So during life, we practice like that in the daytime, at the time of going to sleep at night, sort of um, linking that to the dying process. So again, at the time of death, the white and red drops meet at the heart and all the energies come into the heart. We stop breathing, the heart stops beating. 
And for the untrained person, the drops just stay there for a moment, and then we have a flash, the radiant, joyful, clear light of death, and we leave the body. But in dream yoga, we try to hold the drops at the heart and retain that clear light to, as a practice of dream yoga, linking the dream body to the bardo body or the after-death body, the dream state to being something like the after-death state. So it's a little bit like, you know, practicing swimming in a little pool in your backyard as a, and then eventually hopping into the Olympic pool when you get up, get your crack at the Olympics in Japan in 2020. And uh, when with the great masters die, very often they sit in meditation doing that tumo practice and that, that illusory body clear light practice. And when the drops come to the heart, retain them there for some days, weeks, or sometimes even months. So Kyoji Ling Doji Chang, for instance, I think it was something like 18 days or 20 days, and Trijan Rinpoche did something the same. The main purpose of this is to sort of inspire students, you could say, and also to give um, the main students uh, an opportunity to visit and sort of uh, say goodbye in a yeah, this word guru or lama, often we associate it with some sort of devotional relationship. And I think uh, that's actually a mistranslation from the Tibetan. I know it's a lot of Tibetan lamas even say guru devotion, whereas the actual word in Tibetan is lama la tenba, which means sort of leaning, leaning on, leaning on a sort of a senior practitioner, you could say, or a, a master. So it's much more to do with inspiration and guidance. So I think this practice of tuktam was really meant as kind of an inspirational demonstration on the part of great masters passing away, like Ling Rinpoche, who remained in tuktam for almost three weeks, and Trijan Rinpoche for a long period of time, and all of the other great masters that I've known. Uh, and it gives all the students a time to visit and uh, the people who are close to that person. And one saw them live exemplary spiritual lives and one gets to see proper conscious dying. And I think that's in a very important aspect of the guru-student relationship or guru-chela relationship. So for me, watching, visiting my great masters when they, in the days after they pass, when they're sitting in Tukdam. Because actually when they sit there, you know, most people when they die within a few hours, they start to smell quite bad. <laughs> the body releases a lot of fluids and uh, basically bacteria start setting in and, you know, within a few hours, uh, like flies start laying eggs and all the rest of it. It's kind of a not that pleasant. But in Tukdam, even the body sits in, sits in meditation for weeks, the body retains an almost sandalwood-like fragrance. There's no sign of uh, the unpleasant uh, aromas associated with the corpse. It almost is like walking in a rose garden. The, their, their body just exudes a most wonderful, wonderful fragrance. You know, Tibetans say, oh, yes, it's the fragrance of their meditative discipline, the, the perfume of successful meditation. 
And uh, yeah, in terms of my own teachers, one of my teachers was the great Namgyal Kenza Rinpoche, uh, who had been the abbot of Dalai Lama's monastery for a dozen or so years, and before that had been the abbot of Gyume, the older tantric college of the Dalai Lama school, of the Golden, Golden Hat School. And he had a bad heart and was told not to teach and by Dalai Lama just to be an inspiration and give personal audiences. But everyone nonetheless at New Year's, when you visited for a new year, you say, oh, we hope your health is good enough to teach this year. It would just sort of be a ceremonial thing. It wasn't like a request to teach. And this one year he says to me, yes, yes, this year I think I'll give you a teaching. And uh, he pulled out his almanac, his calendar, and looked at it for an auspicious day. And it was a couple of months down the way. And uh, then he set the date. And then during the, uh, the six weeks or eight weeks or whatever went by, and at that time, the Dalai Lama, when the teaching started, the Dalai Lama had just started giving a teaching at the request of Gyume Tantric College. And they had come all the way, all the monks of Gyume had come all the way from South India. And uh, Namgyal, the Dalai Lama's other monastery, and he'd been the abbot of that for a dozen or so years, were all in town for that, were participants of that teaching. And during the... So then the, the first teaching started for us. Well, so Dalai Lama is giving his teachings all day, and he, uh, this Rinpoche Namgyal Kensar is giving a teaching to us. And during the, he says, oh, you can bring a dozen or so people. I'll organize a translator. So you won't have to translate. You can just concentrate on the teaching. And about a half an hour or so into the teaching, he started touching his chest. And I said, and then I noticed that for a few times, and he would talk for, I don't know, 20, 30 seconds, and the translator would translate. So when the translator was talking, I leaned over and said, Rinpoche, what's going on? Why are you touching your chest? And he says, heart attack, which was kind of a shock for me. And then I said, well, like, bad one? He says, yeah, pretty bad. And then another couple of minutes go by where I'm figuring out what to say or do about this because he, he's being so quiet and relaxed with everything. So... I said, like, painful? And Because he, he's looking so relaxed. He says, yes, very painful. So then uh, I said, well, and now by each time, this would be like when the translator's talking, I'm whispering to him because he sat me directly in front of him, like less than a yard, not the uh, social distancing uh, required under the present the corona situation. And so I said, well, then so when... Um, the translator's talking, I'm whispering to him, leaning over, I'm whispering to him, and so it's kind of just between us. And then the next time the translator talks, I says, well, heart attack and bad and painful, shouldn't we stop the teaching? And he replies, well, the teaching is for you, so it's up to you, we can finish now or finish later. And uh, so that sort of, again, shocked me, so I couldn't immediately, like, say what to, that seems like, uh, you know, it sort of stunned me, so to speak. And a few more sessions went by with him talking, translator him, translator him. Then I leaned across and said, well, Rinpoche, if it's up to me, I don't think my nerves can take it. I think we have to stop now. And he says, well, that's fine if that's what you like. So then we stopped and he sort of signaled for everyone to leave and put out his arm for me to help him up for his, from his chair and walk him into his room. And he went into his room and sat up in meditation. And then... Uh, he sat in meditation for many, many hours, and then 
basically just stretched out in the lion posture and uh, said to said to his attendant that that uh, sort of sort of said his goodbyes to his attendant and just stretched out and passed away and took down meditation. And about 15 minutes later, I was told the next day, the Dalai Lama was doing his meditations in his house, which is about, I don't know, maybe three, 400 yards away or meters away. He said, oh, there's a rainbow and a radiance above Kenzer Rinpoche's house. What's going on down there? Send someone over. So they ran over and learned that Rinpoche had just entered Tukdam. So the Dalai Lama noticed it from the radiance over the house. And so when I went up the next morning at 10 o'clock, that's what I was told. And then Rinpoche sat in Tukdam for three or four days, remained in Tukdam for three or four days. And all of his students from Gyume, who were in town for Dalai Lama teaching, got to visit and say goodbye, and all of his Namgyal students. And of course, everyone else who had been close students with him, who were not part of those two uh, monastic institutions, had come to that town, town for that same teaching, because it was requested by Gyume. And so everyone got to visit and say goodbye. And it's amazing in his room, the, the smell really was just like a sandalwood fragrance. And then the, one morning at six, he just left his body. And so they sent a note down to me saying, come quickly, because uh, he just left his body. So we'll do the cremation later today. And I just seen him hours before. And at that time, the aroma was completely sandalwood from his body, just absolutely perfect, just a most beautiful garden flower fragrance. And already, once the once he left the body, within half hour, the, that, that sort of smell of uh, a corpse entered the air. And as we carried him up the mountain and took him. And the amazing thing was as they, uh, the cremation started, at, he was kind of a, a little bit of a chunky guy. And so a little bit into the cremation, about maybe an hour into the cremation, they hit his chest bone uh, with a sledgehammer to crack the chest bone so the cremation would happen. And the amazing thing was the heart just sort of popped straight up from the heat. And just be and just stood up like like a like a rose like a rose in a flower vase. It was very 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 amazing, and just beat three or four times, I presume, from the you know the heat of the fire, and uh, then sort of fell over on the side, and the cremation went on. So it took them like that. You could say as controlled death or conscious death by a great master. Done, uh, performed as a demonstration to students to how to die consciously and taking, during our whole life, we should always think of everything we do as being not only our own karmic um, flow, but we are also role models to everyone in our life, aren't we? Uh, you're a role model to your friends, you're a role model to your loved ones, your family, you're a role model to your if you have kids, to all your kids, and you're a role model to everyone who ever sees you or hears about you or has any direct contact to you. People learn from each other basically through some kind of role modeling. We learn bad language through others, we learn bad behavior through others, we learn cruelty through others, we learn 
rudeness through others. We learn mean-spiritedness. We learn greed and jealousy and so on. Not that we don't have these on some kind of deeper instinctual level, but we learn them to be um, social norms, you could say, through role modeling. So I think there's always that emphasis in the Buddhist tradition to think that everything you do, firstly, you're doing it for your own happiness, your own liberation, your own enlightenment. But through your own happiness, your own liberation, your own enlightenment, you are also broadcasting or advertising to others, advertising goodness, advertising freedom, advertising kindness and love and wisdom and so on and so forth that these are important qualities. So living an exemplary life, you could say, is important in Dharma, in Buddhism, in the Enlightenment tradition, and dying an exemplary death is our kind of final, it's like the punctuation you put at the end of a sentence. That's remarkable. What impact did witnessing that series of events have on you personally? Well, I, you know, if uh, if we look at the whole death phenomena. Uh, for a long time in our Western spiritual tradition, death was used as something to inspire us in our own life, to live a good life and to think of our life as something temporary and manageable. And if we live a good life, that could lead to a good death and a good death can lead to a good hereafter. That was quite strong in our Western spiritual traditions and in most spiritual traditions around the world. Even say all spiritual traditions around the world, but then someone will say, oh no, there was one somewhere in the New Guinea with the headhunters or something, which wasn't. But uh, it was very important with all. And then with us in the West, maybe 150 years ago, 200 years ago, death became something of a taboo subject. And then death became taken over by the by the hospitals and nurses, and it basically just became a medical situation, not a spiritual situation. And the whole effort to, the effort to live as long as you possibly can, regardless of quality of life, and whether or not you could die consciously or die meaningfully or anything, sort of just became lost by the wayside. And for me, I think one of my most beautiful early experiences were the deaths of my own grandmother when I was, I don't know, four or five years old. And I remember going up and visiting her and the body was kept at home because in the Irish Protestant tradition, we don't like giving our bodies to funeral homes and like that. And we don't like putting formaldehyde and all that sort of stuff in it. So they basically just sort of, you know, perfume up the room a little bit and cut down the smell a bit. But I think it was a very beautiful experience, that kind of intimate, intimate connection with my grandmother the day before she was buried. But then we took that away from the home and it started to go to hospitals and then it's just like a funeral home theater kind of thing. So I think the first person in the West to really address the traumatic and disastrous effects of this sterilization of death was Elizabeth Kubler-Ross in the late 60s, early 70s, started doing a lot of research and study on the human side of the death and dying phenomena and started to 
doing studies of psychological states involved and how it affects the person and how it affects people around the person and all of that. And uh, her work really brought into focus the importance of the visibility of death as a natural phenomena, as opposed to Hollywood glamorization of, you know, Jack the Ripper, you know, sort of endless killing in war movies and uh, gunfight movies and all that sort of stuff. You know, sort of the naturalness of life and death as an integrated whole. And that sort of brought me back to Socrates and his apologies with Plato, talking about life and death, the other side of life is death, the other side of death is life, and so on. So Elizabeth Kubler-Roth really brought this back as kind of a uh, one of the humanities studies. And graciously, that book you showed, which was Mind, Death, and Dying, the Tibetan Tradition, published in England by, originally by, Rutledge, to be published by Rutledge and Keegan Paul, but they were bought out by Penguin Viking, so brought out, to, and in the end published by Viking Penguin under their Arcana series. And when it came out in America as living in the face of death, they had a, they brought a German, uh, they brought a forward to it from Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, who had studied the Tibetan tradition through Tibetan Book of the Dead and other kinds of work, works like that, looking at international attitudes towards a healthy kind of living with death, you could say. And so she was really the first one to break the taboo. And in it, she says something like, previously, sex was the big taboo from the Victorian times. And now, death is like the last taboo. And when she started doing her studies, it really was like that. And it's still like that to some extent. People really do try and keep old age and death as far away from them as they can, because it's not really attractive to our consumer society. You know, companies, the advertising target group is like eight to 38. <laughs> That's who people who spend the most money, parents on their kids from age <laughs> seven or eight, and they have their own pocket money to spend. And then young adults who basically just see their first 10 years of their income as something to have fun after getting out of college. So there's that kind of emphasis on the celebration of that period of our life commercially and consumer-wise. And so death and dying is only interesting to the capitalist side of society, if you will, as a kind of marketing of drugs for old people with old folks' diseases and you know, comfortable old folks' homes and retirement homes and retirement pensions and all of this kind of stuff. So basically, as Kubler-Ross points out, the whole thing was just taken out of the home and put in a kind of a clinical situation and became a taboo subject. Uh, in any other way than uh, advertising for a retirement pension. Even then, it's not directly connected to do with your death or your dying. It's really just to do with how to be sure you can like go sailing and you know take tours to foreign countries when you, after your retirement. <laughs> Pretend you're young when you're very old, <laughs> something like that. So I think the Buddhist idea that from the beginning of our life, we should maintain as intimate a relationship with death and dying as we can. I think that's very, very, very healthy. I love the teaching in the Chakrasambhara Tantra, which says, uh, see your body as a corpse. 
because from the time you're conceived, you're walking with a death sentence. So you're really just carrying a corpse. See, your mind is the bearer of that corpse. Wherever you go, your mind is just carrying your corpse. And see, every place you go is extremely dangerous. There's not a single place or situation where endless numbers of sentient beings haven't died. People die in their beds, they die in their living rooms, they die walking up and down stairs, they die getting into their car, they die driving in their car, they die in airplanes, they die in restaurants, they die eating, they die on the toilet. Coral Elvis Presley died on his toilet. <coughs> so this idea that somehow we should ignore death and that it's a healthy thing to do, that just living in this sort of consumer-orientated society without any sense of the deeper nature of our life is very superficial. Every place is dangerous. And finally, uh, the emptiness factor, nothing is what it appears. And Chakrasambhara, of course, doesn't want to be depressing about this or morbid or macabre. So they go to the other side of it as well. But as you walk through this, yea, though you walk through the valley of death, <laughs> have a four counteractive instructions. And the first of those is be as blissful and joyful and fearless and as energetic and as, and as, and as enthusiastic as a tiger on the prowl or tiger walking joyfully through the jungle and be as open and as spacious as a yogini in meditation. In other words, a female mystic in meditation and like a dancing cobra to the dance of music dance between the beyond appearance nature or emptiness nature, the infinity of being and the actual presence of the moment. And finally, be like a dancing Daka or Dakini, an angel or angelette, celebrating everything that comes into your life. So at the one hand, there's this blissful, joyful, celebrating aspect. But on the other side, we have to keep the other eye on the fact that we are just carrying a corpse. And that corpse is borrowed. It's like a, the seven Dalai Lama puts in a poem. Your body is like a boat borrowed to cross the ocean of being, the ocean of becoming. So this world, uh, this word sipa in Tibetan, uh, often translated as worldly existence or what actually, but it actually just means becoming. And uh, we become, become, become until we are, you could say something like that. So sipa really means something like we're always just floating around, circling the essence, but never touching the essence. And the essence there being fulfillment or enlightenment the attainment of the knowledge of our deeper nature, our deeper self. So see your body as a boat that was borrowed by your mind to, to traverse the ocean to the jewel isle of liberation and enlightenment. And then when you arrive, you have to give the body back. So we borrowed this boat for anywhere from some die in their womb, some coming out, some in various ages, but however long we live, to use it in a meaningful way. That's wonderful. Another death phenomena that is in the Tibetan tradition is that of the rainbow body. Could you talk a little bit about what that is and how it's achieved and the purpose of it? Well, when we look at this uh, doctrine taught in all of highest yoga tantras, but mainly, mainly in Galugpa, we rely upon Guya Samaja and Chakrasambhara, those two tantras 
uh, one being the male tantra, male energy tantra, and chakra samphara, the female radiance tantra. That illusory body doctrine, you could say, or teaching or instruction, philosophy, all of it, whether you take it as a philosophy, an idea, or as an instruction, a way to achieve it, comes from those two tantras. And it's got to do with this nature of this of having three levels of body, coarse, subtle, and most subtle. In other words, in Tantra, based on gulo, or illusory body, that all physical phenomena is just energy. So, you know, modernists like to link it to E equals MC squared. <laughs> Mass equals energy. Mass times the square of the speed of light equals energy. Everything is just energy, and the energy binds in various ways to make matter or mass. And so the idea there is that from on the coarse level, our body takes up and drops off various forms, and on the subtle level, our energies within this body, chemistry based on the drops and the chemistry and the energies generated by those chemicals, and on the subtle level of the soul, the five radiances, as they're called, the five subtle radiances, which propel the soul or support the soul. So from lifetime to lifetime, it's these five which takes consciousness from the time of death through the bardo into the next life and so on. So in a sense, you could say these five radiances of the soul are the deeper nature of all physical matter. And that the rainbow body is linking, uh, relating to our physicality by bypassing or going beyond or penetrating through, I guess would be a better way, penetrating through the ordinary uh, or the coarse body and the subtle body and directly penetrating to the most subtle body. And the idea is there when we do that, all of the grasp, uh, the, the grasping or retention of the physicality to its ordinary appearance or ordinary manner as coarse, subtle, and most subtle, uh, evaporate. That, that process basically breaks down and we're able to deal with that energy purely on its most subtle level, the five radiances of the soul. So it's the five radiances of the soul that become bound and manifest as the five radiances of the subtle body and it's the five radiances of the subtle body that manifest as the coarse body. So it's a little bit like a holographic image of a holographic image of a holographic image. On the most subtle level it's pure energy and as you become more coarse and then most coarse that energy becomes you could say sort of coagulated so it's almost a little bit like solid melting to liquid, melting to gaseous. I think something along those lines you could say would work as a metaphor. In some accounts of uh, yogis who pursue the rainbow body practices, they're sometimes said that their physical bodies will shrink or crumple uh, into a very, very tiny little body, or perhaps even completely disintegrating with only fingernails and some hair remaining. What would uh, dictate whether a yogi would die in that way or in the way of Tukdam, which doesn't have that same disintegrating quality? Well, usually monks are supposed to 
die using tuktam, not rainbow body, because they should leave a physical body of relics, a relic body, so that our physical body is left. And then when it's ritualistically cremated, I mean, when they cremate it, as usually in our school, Dalai Lama school, they cremate it uh, in conjunction with using the self-initiation, or the initiation ceremony, or initi self-initiation ceremony of Chakrasambhara. And so then the body leaves all kinds of ringsil, they're called in Tibetan, they're tsari in the Far East. So holy relics, and these relics have all kinds of magical powers. And uh, these can be distributed amongst students, disciples, put inside stupas and temples and statues. And they continue the energy of that master. And they're, they act, you could say, as a direct telephone line or a black hole in space through which one can pass to directly communicate with those great masters who have passed. So, for instance, one of my teachers in Nepal who passed, uh, when they cremated, they took his relics from his from his fire, and some of them were shaped like little red, little red jewels. They're often shaped like little red crystal jewels, and because they're crystalline, they reproduce. They put them in little glass cabinets, and big ones produce little ones, almost like making babies, you could say. And then these are distributed amongst. Um, disciples of that master. And sometimes you'll get one in a little stupa or in a statue of his favorite practice, your connected practice with him, and you'll put that on your altar. And it sort of acts as a telephone line, you could say, to that master. So that then if you need some inspiration, you can basically sit in front of your altar and meditate or stretch out in front of your temple room and uh, with your head towards the altar and do dream yoga and have a direct communique with that being. So often with uh, monks, it's more common to do tuktam and this cons is considered more auspicious because it leaves a greater quantity of ring sill and it also allows students to have a very auspicious goodbye. But sometimes, uh, for whatever reason, the masters will decide to do uh, to, to do the rainbow body manifestation. But uh, if you can do tuktam, you can do rainbow body manifestation. And Yamataka Tantra, it says that when you master the Vajra recitation, of holding the energies at the heart and you bring all of the energies out of the body. So it means from every cell you withdraw the life-sustaining energy, flow it through the heart into the clear light, bathe, give it a wash or a scrub in clear light mind and then flow it back into the individual cells. And doing that repetitively, gradually, the cells lose their materia, their their concrete quality of their materiality and become rainbow-like. So once that is mastered, that person essentially has attained the rainbow body. Then when they die, if they choose to go in that way as their choice, or if they choose to leave, leave um, sari or leave ring cell for their students, that's their choice. 
So usually masters who don't have many students do rainbow body. You know, there's not much to leave, so you leave a little bit of hair and nails. But if you've got a lot of students, you should do tuktam and leave thousands of these little crystals, each of which can self-procreate. <laughs> and so Ling Rinpoche did that, Trijan Rinpoche, the Panchen Lama, when he was uh, murdered by the Chinese in 1989, similarly did that. And most of the all of the great masters I know when they died, they died like that. And they have a special kind of Vajra scoop for the ashes that when they go through the cremation pyre to sort of sift out these crystal relics, which will self-produce as kind of little touchstones to connect to the infinity of being, connect with that master from beyond the ordinary boundaries of time and space. Have you ever established contact with one of your deceased masters through meditating in front of a relic or doing dream yoga with your head towards the altar? Well, you know, whether or not one can say one really has or one just thought one did, <laughs> you know, because there's a problem there, isn't it? You know, evangelistic preachers are always talking to someone who they can't see. So whether one, one should proclaim that one had a conversation with invisible beings, <laughs> Whether that would be a kind of a point of ridicule or a point of inspiration is hard to say. But uh, certainly, since my masters have passed, and whenever I have a strong issue in my mind about any point of practice or point of training or point of life decision, I will often do a meditation in front of the statues, the little statue I have with some relics of my great masters. I have one little Tara statue, which has a hair from the head of all previous Dalai Lamas in it. So, and just uh, Tara in our Galupa school is very, very strong, strong inspiration practice. She could say female Buddha Tara, because she represents Buddha energy, Buddha karma, Buddha activity, but a communicative principle. So if I have some decision to make, just meditate and think of that issue and just ask for guidance or inspiration in decision-making. So I would like to say that, yes, Ling Rinpoche told me directly, blah, 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 whether or not he did or whether or not I just thought he did or whether or not just thinking about him and what he represent led me to a more sensible decision. <laughs> could be a point of issue and debate from everyone from psychologists to theorists to secularists and so on. But yeah, I, I very much believe that sacred implements carry energies beyond the ordinary constraints of time and space. And not only with uh, one's masters who have deceased, but even with one's living masters. When I was out on Kailash one year and things look a little bit, we'd, we'd uh, had a few problems on that Kailash Kora. And as we were doing it, we had a big hailstorm, and I was way up in front of everyone else. So I wasn't sure I would actually survive. And at that time, I was, I was very happy to pass away. It was a beautiful place to die, beautiful day to die. Uh, certainly would look nice in my tombstone, died doing his uh, fifth Kora of Kailash. That would be better than died, you know, hit by a run over by a, by a, by a truck in Oklahoma. 
Uh, I thought it would be a nice play, nice tombstone uh, epithet, but anyway, I sort of just sat there in meditation, had a sense of all my teachers, and uh, I was completely ready to go, and all poet uh, up, so to speak. <laughs> but then circumstances changed, and it, these ideas, it became apparent that I, I shouldn't. Uh, I shouldn't let things go at that time, and if I made a little effort, I could get out of it. So I did. But uh, at that time, I felt I really did have very clear connection with my great teachers, Ingrid Rinpoche, Trijung Rinpoche, Dalai Lama, Namga Kinza Rinpoche, those you know, very great uh, Gelugpa masters, and that they were just sitting there with me as calm and controlled as can be, and as happy as can be, and it's like... Uh, no big deal. Come or stay. Yes, you have to do your best, whether you come, whether you stay. And I do feel that I had very clear guidance and communication at that time. And many other times in my life, whenever I've had a sort of important decision making that just coming to a decision, given the data you have, is not always sufficiently clear. What would be the West, as the expression goes, 2020, Hindsight is twenty twenty. Foresight not always possible. To so in those times, asking for guidance or inspiration, you could say, to make a the best possible decision. And I do feel, yeah, I've had guidance and communications directly from those beings. You know, Kadubje, uh, one of the one of Sankapa's great disciples, when Sankapa got got old, and uh, one of his teeth fell out and so he and he gave it to one of his disciples and the other disciples all got very jealous so he put it on the altar and they all sat meditating in front of it and it produced little relics beside it sort of little not tooth like but little round ball crystal relics it produced its own crystal relics so they all had one and that's kind of an example even physically these things can even uh, even a physical relic like an old tooth can reproduce. But uh, he kept his tooth with him, put it in a statue, put it on his altar, and over the next years, whenever he had any important issue arise in his life, important decision to make, he would meditate in front of that. And we have five great paintings, Jay's uh, Bangadin, uh, the five visions of Sankapa by and I included them in my book, uh, Mystical Arts of Tibet, those five paintings, which Kadubje had based on the relic from Sankapa after Sankapa passed away. In fact, that exhibit, I that was based on an exhibit I did for Oglethorpe University in Atlanta for the 1996 Olympics, where we were, managed to get 50 or so private paintings of the Dalai Lama uh, for show during the Olympics because... Tibetans couldn't come to the Olympics because of losing their country to China. And so we thought it'd be nice to have the Dalai Lama have a presence there. And we asked him and we asked him to choose himself what would be appropriate. And those were five of the ones that he he sent over amongst the 50 or so objects that he sent to us for exhibit during that 1996 Summer Olympics in Atlanta. And amazingly, here I am in Atlanta Today, 1996, what is it, 24 years later? 
these relic things, I think, are a very important part of the living legacy of Buddha, right from the time of Buddha. So Buddha himself, for instance, didn't manifest rainbow body because he had thousands of disciples and they all wanted cremation materials. So when he died, he invited representatives of the eight kingdoms where he mostly had taught around uh, central India, uh, north, north central India. And all eight kings sent peoples to his passing. And at the end of his cremation, they divided his relics into eight pouches. And these were taken back to those eight kingdoms. And the Buddhist tradition of eight stupas comes from that first period at the time of Buddha's passing. And before Buddha, of course, the stupa as a kind of sacred burial mound of saints was always there. And we put, they would put the relics the cremation remains of great those great masters divide them in parts and put some inside the main stupa, which you could say is a sacred burial mound for them directly. And people can go and circumambulate that or meditate there, do prostrations or whatever, and get inspiration and visions. And then part of those relics would be distributed amongst main disciples to carry that person's legacy in various directions. As you know, there's a in China, that tradition became very, very strong in early Buddhism. So uh, some said that when Bodhidharma got very old, he wanted to return to India, but uh, the, nobody would let him go because they wanted to keep him there for his relics. And some stories even say they went so far as to assassinate him so he couldn't leave. <laughs> So those relics, in many ways, more important than the person, because that person's going to last at most, you know, 90 or 100 years, right? Whereas the relics last for centuries and centuries and continue to multiply. <laughs> That's the danger of devotion. You assassinate your own guru for his relics. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I think it is true. I mean, for instance, I remember when I was in... India many years ago. You know, the most precious relics, of course, with Tibetans are the ones directly from the Buddha because they have great antiquity to them. But I remember a British friend of mine was very near to death and no medicines were helping. And she visited Trijan Rinpoche and he did a bunch of divinations. And he said, well, you know, I do have one ring seal from Buddha himself and uh, that's the only thing that will cure you. So I'll, I'll cut that in half and give you half. So he took it out and took a pair of a very fine knife and cut it in half and gave it to her. And then she took it and swallowed it with a cup of buttered tea and got better. <laughs> so these things have been cherished since antiquity and still continue to be cherished today. So let's talk a bit about consciousness transference POA, which is rather widely taught, and also forceful projection or drongjuk, which is not. About POA you write, the premise behind the doctrine of consciousness transference is that the state of one's body and mind at the moment of death makes a tremendous difference to the experience of dying and how one will enter the bardo. And of drongjuk you write, the practice itself is exotic, transferring one's consciousness into a fresh corpse. To get the hang of it, one begins by training in the technique by means of attempting to revitalize the bodies of small animals. 
eventually one can work up to the real thing, a human corpse. I'm wondering if you could talk a bit about the roles of those practices in the six yoga system. And can you explain that phrase, revitalize the bodies of dead animals? Um, are you aware of how this is done? <laughs> well, the important one there is poa rather than trangjog, how to die consciously. Tibetans refer to that as magom sangye, enlightenment without meditation. And all schools of Tibetan Buddhism train, have a poa training. I think Nyingma and Kargyu Amitabha is most important. In Kalugpa, we prefer the Vajrayogini poa methods, either the white yogini from the Naguma system with uh, coming the white yogini come from uh, Maitripa, one of Marpa's great gurus, and uh, also from Sukha city in India. But the idea is, uh, if, if when we're alive, we should train our body and mind to be ready to die. We should always be ready to sit up and die because we never know. We eat food and we eat something food which is bad for us and we die or we get bitten by a scorpion or a snake and we're away from help. We have to sit up and die or we find ourselves, I don't know, like that fellow who went out in the, People are always going hiking in remote places and they fall off cliffs or they break a leg and can't get out and so on. So people never know when or where they're going to die from the time they're born. So a daily meditation three times a day, we should recollect this could be my last day on earth. And we say in the morning, meditate and remember this could be my last morning, early afternoon and meditate. This could be my last afternoon, evening, just Again, recollect death and dying. This could be my last evening. Use those occasions accordingly in a positive way. And if you can do that, then you'll be ready to die at any time. And uh, the way I think of the POA here being an extension of highest yoga tantra, the way we practice it in Galupa, that, that uh, Kargyu Nyingma way tends to be a little bit more a Kriya Tantra practice, sort of based a little bit more on devotion, if you will. We visualize Amitabha and so on in the death canal. But in uh, Kalupa, there's more of a reliance upon Tumo practice and the yogic system of controlling energies at the time of death. And then using that way of centralizing the energies of, as a way of kind of preparing the death canal or death passage from the navel to the crown of the head. So that at the time of death, we're very easily to centralize the energies in the central channel and then raise consciousness directly from there to leave the body via the crown aperture, the Brahma aperture, as it's called, the top of the crown and to project directly from there into the infinity of space and into the, um, into the, into the mode of tra transmigration or transition. So this kind of training is usually done when we're young, in 20s or 30s is the kind of latest that is recommended. Some people do even earlier in their teens because lots of people die in their teens and in their 20s and their 30s and their 40s. <laughs> and it said, don't leave it too late because then if you haven't mastered those yogas when you're reasonably young, mastering them when you're older is more difficult. So, you know, if you suddenly hear, I've got brain cancer and three months to live and you're 80 years old, it may not be possible to 
master those yogas so so well. So the earlier the better to do poa, to train in poa. So that statement is made there. As for Trungjug, uh, there's a sort of a legendary practice that in ancient times, people, you, someone could die of exhaustion of their own life karma, but there's no specific life cause of their death. In other words, they just died of exhaustion of life karma. And uh, maybe you could say some sort of just a heart attack or a malfunction of the electric system of the body so that the heart stopped or whatever. And if someone is very old at that time, I think sitting in uh, when people would meditate in charnel grounds in India, it was very common within a day of the person seeming to die, the body would be stretched out in a charnel ground. And so if one was 80 or 90 year old Mahasiddha meditating in that charnel ground, the more I could do in this life rather than transition out and get a new body, getting one in its teens or 20s, which has still some work left in it, some uh, you know, life left in it. And if it has not degenerated in any way, then projecting consciousness out of the body into that and reviving it. And so that's what Trangchuk means, a kind of forceful projection. Now it's told in Marpa when he demonstrated this in Tibet, first there was a pigeon who had died in front of his house. So as they were sitting there, this pigeon just sort of plopped down dead. And he said, oh, I can demonstrate in that pigeon. So he projected his consciousness out of the body into the pigeon and flew around. <laughs> so those kind of stories are told. Now, as for historical accounts, I may have told you before in one of the interviews we've done, but in Korea, it's very often said that when Bodhidharma came to, to, to China, to West China, which is really Eastern Tibet at that time, uh, he was a young monk and his guru had told him, don't leave, don't go east for another nine years, stay here to finish your training. But he was young and impetuous and wanted, you know, it was rumored that in China, every monk from India was treated like a visiting saint or mystic. And all the kings basically saw you as great treasures and aristocrats and everyone sort of heaped honor and respect on you. So he thought, oh, I'd like some of that. So he didn't follow his guru's uh, advice and went to India nine China nine years early, and as he crossed down into West China on the border of East Tibet, he passed the Taoist mountain. And when he was camped, when he camped there for the evening, local people said to him, oh, we have real problems with uh, spirits on this mountain. You Indian monks, you're supposed to be really good with spirit control, so couldn't you help out? So Bodhidharma said, yeah, yeah, no problem. And so the next morning he went into deep meditation, projected himself out of his body and entered the spirit world to work with the spirits and control the spirit problem. And then suddenly he had a kind of an anxious feeling like, oops, and he went back to look at his body and uh, two Taoist monks had been, old monks had been walking down the mountain and saw that young, handsome Indian body there. And one of them was like this 80 year old sort of haggard old Taoist monk. So he thought, oh, yes, I could use that body. I've got some more work left to do in this, this life. So 
he lay down beside it, projected his spirit out of it, entered Bodhidharma's body and revived Bodhidharma. So then Bodhidharma came back, said, hey, hey, that's my body. Come back, come back. <laughs> and the Taoist monk said, sorry, I only know how to go one way. I don't know how to go the other way. I've only ever learned the one way to go. And so Bodhidharma thought, okay, well, I guess I'm skirud. And so then, the, but the Taoist monk said to him, if you want, you know, you can use my old body. So he projected himself into that old body of the old Taoist monk. And that's why in paintings, um, Bodhidharma always looks like a very old Taoist monk and not like a young, handsome Indian monk. And that story is told in all the Zen monasteries of Korea. Now, friends of mine from who teach Japanese Zen don't know it, but the Zen monasteries of Korea, it's a very popular story known, known to one and all that uh, Bodhidharma, the reason he looks like Chinese is because of that Trungchuk practice. He, he got the, the short end of the stick, so to speak. So then he couldn't figure out what to do. So then he remembered, well, my teacher told me I shouldn't have come for nine years. So he walked over to the nearest cave and sat facing the wall for the next nine years until <laughs> he got back in tune and on time with his guru's instruction. That's why he sat facing a wall for nine years. <laughs> Is Trong Chuk also dependent upon the Tumo power? Yeah, there's no way to do Trong Chuk without energy control. But as you know, in Taoism, they have a very similar practice with their qi and qigong and those kind of uh, uh, those kind of energy practices from ancient Taoism. That they seem to be pretty well pan-Asian practices, going all the way from the tip of Korea, across China, Mongolia, across the Silk Road, down through India, across through ancient Persia, and perhaps even down to Egypt and uh, the ancient Egyptian civilization. So it seems to be part of a very very ancient civilization. You know, we Buddhists aren't very much on the modern way, the modern view of human life on earth being so brief. We think civilizations have been here for hundreds of thousands of years, and there's just been rising and fallings of different civilizations, uh, different continents rising and falling, and so on. So, this idea that we were all just basically Neanderthals descended from, you know, baboons in Africa or something like that, for us Buddhists is not a very, uh, probable situation, a little bit like the flat earth theory as far as we're concerned, may have been very popular, may be popular for at one time, but eventually its fallacy will be de demonstrated. As a Lama, I know that you are sometimes asked to perform practices and rituals on behalf of a dying or recently deceased person. Can you say about how you approach such a situation and what sort of operations you're called upon to perform? Usually, poa when it's done by a, by a lama for a, a, for someone, and usually, the closer the connection you have with that person, the better it is. As uh, in Tibetan Book of the Dead, Karma Lingpa clearly states that if the two peoples both have initiation from the same guru at the same time, that karmic connection will make that person's poa for you much more effective but even if you don't have that if you at least have the same initiation from the same master that will help if they're not if not just being somehow connected helps 
So in terms of my own self, uh, whenever I've been asked, it's always been with people who considered me as their their sort of spiritual instructor or their, their lama, their guru, their teacher, whatever one wants to call it. And uh, usually it's been, the, there are ritual texts for such practices, and I, can, I include a very simple one in one of the chapters of my book, uh, Death and Dying, the Tibetan Tradition, or as it's called in America, Living in the Face of Death. And that's got the way of doing yamantaka by reliance upon yamantaka, destroyer of death, the uh, highest yoga tantra practice. Otherwise, uh, and that includes Amitabha as poa for the other person. So usually one does Vajrayogini, one of the Vajrayoginis for one's own poa, for doing for oneself, but doing it for someone else's, especially if they're not accomplished, Amitabha as a general practice is considered to be very good. In your book, Death and Dying, you write, Numerous forms of divination flourished in the land of the snows, such as predictions by dice, reading rosary beads, observing cloud formations, dream interpretations, astrology, etc. Among these was the science of observing for signs or omens portending death, which ranked with special importance amongst tantric yogins and yoginis. And I was curious if you're trained in such divination techniques, that chapter there in the Death and Dying book goes on to list very interesting series of procedures that can be done by somebody who has the certain sorts of initiations and has certain sorts of access to those techniques involving all sorts of things like the way a shadow falls off of somebody when they're standing against the sun and all these totally fascinating stuff. I wondered if you were trained in those sorts of techniques to do with death or otherwise, other divination techniques, and if so, uh, in which circumstances have you employed them? Uh, most tantric practitioners, at least once a year, will do a special dream yoga practice to check for the auspiciousness or inauspiciousness of that upcoming year and for signs of threat, danger, and so on. I mostly, so that text you're referring to, which I included in that my book, uh, Living in the Face of Death, the Tibetan Tradition, is from Karma Lingpa, and it's sort of a supplement to the Tibetan Book of the Dead. I recently translated that for a, for a movie that I worked on back in the late 70s, early 1980s, Tibetan Buddhist Trilogy, a series of three movies. So it was recently translated for that. So that's uh, associated with Tibetan Book of the Dead. I'm mostly... Uh, I personally prefer the little text written by the first Dalai Lama on that subject. And so I haven't published that yet. It's in an, that he does that in his commentary to the Milarepa Longevity Yogas. And so this is a lineage of Ambitayas healing yoga from Kriya Tantra to, combined with Hayagriva from Highest Yoga Tantra. Eight generation stage and eight completion stage practices, in other words, eight mandala mantra practices and eight tumo kind of practices for healing and longevity. And as a preliminary to that, or a, a pre we say a prelude to that text, he writes a little book on observing for the signs of death in various ways. So I mostly rely upon his text. 
And uh, I like Milarepa a lot, that lineage coming from Milarepa. And I like the Dalai Lama lineage a lot. So it goes from Milarepa down to, comes from Rechung, comes into Tibet with Rechungpa, he gives it to Milarepa. Milarepa gives it to Kambopa, comes down to Sankapa and the early Dalai Lamas. So it's a very simple text to practice. And if you, based on what signs you get, you check them for their certainty. And then you check them for the viability of changing or remedying that danger. You know, in Buddhism, we think of death not just as a random experience, but really it's a combination of factors, the perfect storm in your life, a dilapidation of your karmic energies and life exhaustion of your karmic energies, you could say, and a kind of a dilapidation of your creative energies and then uh, the termination of your life force energies. And those three have to come together at one time for you to die. And if you can restore any of those three, at least two of the three, you can probably heal or solve that situation. The belief is something like that, or the idea behind it is something like that, I should say. And most uh, tantric yogis, do that kind of practice once or twice a year as a dream yoga. And the text says very clearly these signs, unless you do the dream yoga practice with uh, with soak, with a tantric feast, with meat and alcohol, <laughs> etc. Unless you do in that tantric way, then the dreams are just dreams. So don't don't take them nervous, don't be nervous if you just happen to get these dreams randomly. They don't mean anything the same thing. They only mean that if if you do the yoga, the ritual and the tantric sog or the tantric feast on, on a, in a very special way to invoke those kind of meaningful pointers. So yeah, I think uh, most tantric practitioners rely upon that for fulfillment of their life's work and their life's destiny. And in that commentary, the Dalai Lama says, so if you do those um, healing or longevity yogas and you've managed to, then you do your dream yoga practice again. And if the dreams change, then it indicates fine. If they haven't changed, that meant probably you can't heal it. So you should just um, focus a little bit more on POA and how to die consciously. <laughs> Have you uh, ever had a situation like that where you're, that dream yoga practice revealed some inauspicious, potentially deadly conditions in the year ahead, and you took some sort of action to remedy that or to mitigate that. Well, you know, I, um, as I said earlier, we should think of our body as already dead and our mind as the barrier of the corpse <laughs> carrying the litter <laughs> on which the corpse is being carried to the cremation pyre or to the charnel ground or the burial ground. But certainly, if I get those kind of, if I get negative signs, then I will take them seriously and do some practice accordingly. Otherwise, why bother doing the practice to look for the signs? If you get the signs, someone tells you there's a police stop around the corner where they're screening everyone for license and registration, and you happen to have forgotten your license and registration at home, You'd be silly just to cruise around the corner without <laughs> going home and 
making up the proper paper. So if you don't, if you're not going to do what the signs in, indicate, and don't look for this, don't make the effort of looking for signs. It's like using the uh, Waze app, which tells you where police speed chases are, speed checks are hiding. If you're going to use it and you notice that there's a policeman one mile down the road, you should slow down to the speed limit. <laughs> By way of, I suppose, putting a little flesh on the bone of that topic, can you uh, recall an example of a sign that you uh, saw and then an action you took that remedied that? Is that something you're able to recount? I mean, it's very... And the signs are very specific in the dream yogas and in the other kind of reading clouds and reading autumn, reading leaves and trees and stuff like that. I think in general, all of nature is always talking to us. We think of our body as the present moment, but uh, our present moment is really born from all of the past and all of the future comes out of the present moment. So we're really, the, the vision of totality sees something the term is used in some tantric traditions of dushipa, the fourth time zone. In the fourth time zone, past, present, and future are all in the present moment. So if we look in the present moment, we can see everything in the past. And when we look in the present moment, we'll have a sense of things unfolding in the future. And so the echoes of the past are always reverberating in our present and our energies of the present are stretching us or leading out down certain paths of the future. So I think all of the universe is always talking to us. We just have forgotten how to listen. And so it's really just a matter of learning to listen to the way the universe talks to us with clouds, with omens, with birds. <laughs> birds are considered very sacred animals in this sort of... Um, deeper time zone messaging, if you will. And so uh, if one gets those signals, then one should take them a little bit seriously and uh, do some meditation practice. Now you can say, one could say, well, you don't really know it's true, but who knows? So why take the chance? And at the very worst, all you've done is a little bit of meditation and mantra, which is, um, there's worse ways to spend your time. <laughs> All the caveats that you're you're saying there are very important and can be held all at the same time. I think all of those interpretations as to its realness can be held at the same time without it necessarily interfering with whatever you're doing. But at least that's been my experience. But in here on the marina, you know, I have a I live on the canal boat, right? And I'm in a marina right now. There's a black swan, and uh, this is uh, it's it's a funny thing, but. I was in Australia and I was interviewing somebody there who had very deep ties to the Aboriginal people and they have this dream time which is a little bit a little bit like that fourth Turiya kind of thing. And yeah. they and he was telling me about it and as he was telling me about it, as is often the case when someone tells you about something, often people do it at the same time and you know, you can catch it by osmosis and and it was a really a remarkable thing as he was talking. And he was telling me stories about a warning bird that he has. It's a type of bird that they have over there. And he was giving me two or three examples of his wife's sister was diagnosed and the bird was there right before the phone call. And the bird came again 
in a very strange way and then they knew the sister had died and in fact she had died you know stories like that he was telling me two mm -hmm. or three of those stories and then I came back here and I was about to leave the boat on, an, on another trip and I walked out of the boat and right at the end of the pontoon so right basically at my front door was the black swan right there staring at me and I thought oh that's nice it's a black swan you know I'm a little bit slow on the uptake sometimes so I you know, sort of knelt down and said hello to the swan. And then off I went. And I had some, let's just say, serious travel complications. As, and as with these things, that's, you know, looking back, I, I realized, aha, uh aha. -huh, uh -huh. Then next time, a little, little later, maybe a few months later, once again, I came out of my boat and the black swan was right there. And I was planning to meet somebody that day. And I thought, oh, that's weird. And it sort of spooked me a bit. I got a spooky kind of feeling. And I thought, gosh that's that's the black swan that's that's the kind of warning thing huh that's interesting and then if i walked and met this person and that meeting had some negative consequences let's put it that way and i looked back and thought oh my god well this time i noticed what was going on but i i didn't have the presence of mind to really change my course of action or, or at least review my plans for the day to see if i should if there was something i should watch out for and it happened again i came out of the boat the swan was there and once again, chills. I mean, I don't, I'm not always chills when I see the swan. It's just when, when you come out and he, he's right there you know, on the edge of the pontoon looking at me. And I said to myself, OK. So I looked ahead and I had a meeting with somebody that day, which I then cancelled and uh, felt better about it. It was not an essential sort of meeting, but the sort of thing I thought, yeah, on second, on second opinion, you know, taking the swan's, swan's perspective into account. And it's one of those things you could, I think, become very superstitious or paranoid about or you can take it i think as a gentle nudge from like you say from nature from the environment to uh, what's i mean the worst that happens is i reconsider my plans and recast them in a slightly more cautious light which is not necessarily a bad thing to have done regardless of whether the swan had anything to do with it so it's it's uh quite a mysterious thing this whole realm that you're talking about and so, something that begins to open up a bit and you start to get a sense of these things and things start to appear but it took me two or three times well three times to to get the message you know so that's usually my pattern with these sorts of things first time i completely miss it the second time i miss it despite having seen it and then the third time is when i start to actually be able to profit from from things like that yeah i think one has uh, a totem animal and also a totem bird, probably a totem flower and <laughs> totem tree. I think there's, we all have our kind of connections uh, spiritually with uh, the universe or with nature, you could say, on various ways like that. And like, for instance, Dalai Lamas are always very connected to the raven and the crow. And so throughout Dalai Lama lives, they are, they're always listening to ravens and crows and the kind of messaging from ravens and crows, which are very intelligent animals, very beautiful animals. And uh, so everyone, I think, has their own in that way. For myself, I certainly feel very connected to birds and bird messaging. I love clouds, cloud messaging. And why, how does one make decisions? One can just make decisions based on dollars and cents or based on time efficiency. I can get this done, this done, this done, this done by crowding this and the other. 
But really, everything is a kind of an unfolding energy process, isn't it? And the more awake one is to the vastness of the universe and how the whole one's whole universe is basically, and as uh, Rumi puts it in one of his poems, it's an upside down fishbowl <laughs> over one's head. <laughs> one is experiencing the whole universe as kind of a kaleidoscopic image of one's own spiritual unfoldment, I think is Rumi's meaning. And if we, if we, just, I mean, we, there's no need for paranoia because well, we're all going to die anyway, but we should try to read things in the best possible way to synchronize our own movement through time and space to synchronize with the bigger picture of our totally unfolding world. And I think in some way you could say we're all at the very, we're at the center of a tornado in our life with uh, the whole universe flying in all kinds of directions and debris flying everywhere. And all we have to do is sit quietly in the center and be in that place of inner relaxation, inner joy, and we will never be afflicted in a negative way until our time comes that uh, we graduate from this little task we have in this body and it becomes time to transition uh, from grade seven to grade eight or from MA to PhD or from PhD to postgraduate research or whatever. <laughs> that uh, learning to see our universe as part of our being, part of our soul, part of our spirit, part of our unfolding life. And I think, you know, in Buddhism, we say the biggest problem for humans is their sense that when they close their eyes, they get the sense that there's little old me over here like a rock in the middle of like a completely self-contained rock in the middle of a vast universe, like a meteor out in the middle of space with completely disconnected from everything else, whereas we're completely interconnected with all things. And noticing that in interconnectivity is an important part and joyful part of the unfolding of one's life. Of course, you know, a paranoid person could become paranoid about it, but as Chakrasambara says, walk fearless like the tiger, but the tiger walking fearless doesn't just bump into trees. <laughs> if it sees a tree, it'll walk around it. It doesn't just step in mud, it'll step on the stepping stones. And it's not doing so out of paranoia or out of irrational fear. In that same way, when we lead our lives moment to moment and hour by hour, day by day, Noticing the way the universe is always signaling us is like a symphony of beautiful sounds and invitations and alluring, alluring messages, you could say. And closing our eyes to that, I think, is very uh, deluded <laughs> and being sensitive to the messaging of the universe. And we don't have to be Buddhist or a tantrika to think that we look at it in a sort of a sort of a more universalist Christian sense, the idea that the whole universe is kind of a creation of God and therefore every tree is God talking to us, every flower is God saying hello and every bird is God chirping away. <laughs> we can think of it like that, but the problem is how to read that stuff in a way other than just mere consumerism. So I think that's what the watching for the signs of one's unfoldment is talking about.
Glenn Mullen, thank you very much. My joy, my honor, and my pleasure. Thank you for listening to another Guru Viking podcast. For more interviews like these, as well as articles, videos, and guided meditations, visit www.guruviking.com.